The following message is by a guest speaker of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. That, of course, is a clip from one of my favorite movies, Amadeus. How many of you have seen that movie? Oh, it is really worth watching. It's a movie from 1984 that chronicles the rivalry, but really not a rivalry because it was a rivalry where only one was competing. The other could care less. I mean, you just... Mozart was oblivious. He goaded Salieri. That was Salieri, by the way. Um, Antonio Salieri was a great composer, but he was always, always haunted by Mozart. And he saw in Mozart a nemesis, a, a rival, because... Ever since he was young, Antonio Salieri only asked one thing of God. What he asked of God was, make me great at music, and I will make your name great through that music. It's a noble request, don't you agree? It's not a bad thing he was asking for. He said, make me amazingly gifted, talented, and I will glorify you through that talent. And everything was going pretty well until Mozart showed up on the scene. And then he realized that what he had was hard work, discipline, grit. But what Mozart had, this young, irreverent, irreligious, womanizing guy, was that divine touch, that mystical spark where you just have it. Have any of you had that experience where you're working so hard to be good at something, someone else just waltzes in, and it's just like so easy, so natural, so effortless, and you don't understand, and it's clear to you that if you tried as hard as you could, you will never quite ever touch that magical giftedness. And it drove Antonio Salieri crazy. And this movie does such a great job of highlighting how it torments a person when someone else has that thing which I most yearned to have. And what's worse is when that person who has it doesn't even seem to appreciate what exactly it is that they have. How much worse then when that same person doesn't use it in anywhere near the same way that you would hope to use it. I don't know what it is that you most prize or want. What we envy in others reveals a great deal to us about how we see our ideal selves. It reveals a great deal about how we want the world to see us and remember us. What we envy in others is what we prize most and yearn to have within us. And everyone's a little different in that, aren't they? That's why I think envy is so selective. There are things that other people have that I don't care about. It doesn't faze me at all. And there are other things that when they have it, I kind of cringe a little. You know, as a pastor, um, I don't really care if somebody's a good singer. 
because I never really thought of myself as a good singer. I don't want to be a good singer. I appreciate good singing, but if you're a good singer, I am so happy for you. I clap for you. I celebrate you. I would like to listen to you, but I don't ever feel a tinge of, I could sing like that. But when I, when I hear a gifted preacher, like my baby brother, and he has this way of taking something complex, deep, and he just goes, oh. And he makes it so clear to me. And I just hear that and go, I wish I had a little more. That's why I denigrate myself often when I preach here by referring to myself as a monkey. <clears throat> because it feels that way to me. Because there are things where I feel like I'm touching it. And there's ways that he just seems to understand the theological depth of it. And I yearn for that. It's because it's something that's relevant to me. And it's not just because I'm a pastor, but it's because that's what I treasure. It's what I long for in myself. It's what I would like to be known for. There are other things in pastoral ministry that I don't envy at all. Other guys would love to be on the radio or to have a book deal or to be pastors of a large church. I've had all three of those things offered to me, and I've turned all three down, not even phased. When my friends say, I just took the pastorate of a 2,000-member church, there's not even an, an inkling of, oh, it's good for you. I would not trade places with you in a million years. Pastoring a 2,000-member church sounds like punishment to me. It doesn't sound like joy. And because I don't want that, I don't envy it in you or anyone else. But here's how you can detect what you do envy. It's that when you see it in someone else, you're the, you're the person who either becomes a hater or you get real quiet because you're trying really hard to be polite, but you can't actually be happy for that person. You go to visit your old friend who you haven't seen in a while. They're like, hey, dude, come over for lunch with your family. And they give you their address. And as you punch it into GPS and you're just tooling along, but all of a sudden you're like, yo, honey, check out these houses. Where are we? And you realize the neighborhood you're pulling to, your friend is a baller. Six of your houses would fit in his servants' quarters. And as you pull in, you're like, I don't know what this is. What does this guy do for a living? And as you see him and he's greeting you because he's so happy to see you, he's coming out to the driveway and you're like, nice house, whatever. And you could, you could see it in your heart in that moment, can't you? I'm trying to act like, yeah, I'm happy for you, but you're not happy for him. You're not happy for him because he has what you most want, and you're trying really, really hard to be a big person, but you know you can't. Secretly, you're like, why you? Why do you get this? And maybe you comfort yourself by saying, don't worry, someday, someday. And you go home, you go, honey, stop buying stuff, we're going to save money. Kids, start making some money and start giving us 10% because one day I'm going to beat him. And in fact, I'm going to actually design my house a little like his house. And then there's going to be one more extra room. And you know what I'm getting at, right? You learn so much about yourself by seeing what you envy. And that's why it's just like temptation. Different things tempt different people. If you show me drugs, not one inkling of... But if you show me something else, if you show me a new Xbox game... The new Call of Duty, I'm going to have a hard time thinking about anything else for like a week. If you show me golf clubs, eh. If you show me an American muscle car from the 70s, 
I'm going to have trouble thinking about anything else for a really long time. You get the idea. Just like temptation is tailor-made to each person, it's got an imprint. Envy is the same way. And that's why we can't universalize envy. You've got to find it in your own heart, detect it and root it out, because envy is really toxic to your relationship with God, your communion with God, because ultimately envy is an indictment of God, but it also really gets in the way of your community with others, because envy frames everyone else as either a winner or a loser compared to you. It's either someone who got more from God or got less from God, and that's the way you start to understand society and community. This evening, we're going to take a tour through envy, and I want to I touch on Titus chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. One of the reasons I don't do a lot of topical preaching at our church is that I, I prefer to do a little bit more of a deep dive expositionally in one text. I don't like skipping all over. But with a topical study like this, I feel like it's necessary to dive off of somewhere, but I cannot really do justice to the text as I'd like to do because I'm actually trying to give a bigger picture for you. So I want to just read through Titus chapter 2, or chapter 3, verses 3 to 7. I am afraid I have done something wrong here, guys. There it goes. All right. <clears throat> Here's what it says. At one time, and this is talking about before we knew Christ, at one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. That's a good description of what life is like before Christ, is that's all we have. It's what drives us. We lived, and listen to this, in malice and envy. Those two things are related. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Last night we saw that Everyone is looking for a sense of dignity and value and worth. And maybe the biggest decision we make in that area is where we will draw it from. Will we try to get it for ourselves, or will we trust God to give us that dignity, value, and worth? See, the envious heart cannot really trust God for that. And so it begins to seek it out by competing with and winning against other people in something which matters to us, which we value. So I want to talk about the root of envy. Where does envy come from? And there's so much that can be said on this. Uh, I will give you the quickie version. Okay, I mean, there are people... In fact, I read one whole book just on the topic of envy. It was a great book. I can't believe you could write a whole book on it. But this guy managed to do it and each page was worth reading. So there's a lot to be said even on one of these topics. Let me just give you a little treatment of the root 
of envy. I believe envy is the distortion of or another side of the coin of pride. If, how many of you are familiar with Pastor Min's heart motives? So you know that in that heart motive thing, there's a success layer and a failure layer. Success is like offense and failure layer is kind of like defense, right? It's trying not to get points scored on me. Success layer is I'm going to score all the points. So pride is kind of like this. Uh, let me give you an idea. C.S. Lewis says it this way, okay? I don't know what I'm doing here. There we go. C.S. Lewis, in, again, clearly was one of my favorite books, Mere Christianity. He says, pride, listen to how he describes pride. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We can say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than someone else. Sorry, hang on. If everyone else became, this is so funny, if everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, think about how interesting a world that would be if everyone was well-resourced, really clever, good-looking. It'd be so pleasant to hang out with people. You're so beautiful and you're so great to have a conversation with, but a prideful person would be miserable in such a world because there would be nothing to be proud about. It is the comparison that makes you proud. The pleasure of being above the rest, once the element of competition has gone, pride has gone. So what, what Lewis is, de- is describing is pride is like this. I feel great because I see that I am better than you. Envy is a distortion of that that says, I feel terrible because I see that you are better than me. So pride is gloating. It's going, yeah! Compared to you, I win. I win, not again. I win at life compared to you. I'm, and because I see that clearly, it feels so good. That's pride. Envy says, I see that you're so much better than me, and I just can't be happy anymore. I feel miserable. And here's why that's so tricky is because even when you're in the same room, you walk up to one person and you're like, yeah, I win. And you turn around. It's like I look at somebody who's scrawny and I go, hey, I'm actually a little bigger than you. Then I turn around and there's Joe. I'm like, oh, God. Why do guys like that? You know what I'm getting at? In the same moment, in the same room, in the same occasion, you can go from being on top of the heap to the bottom of the heap, and it jerks your emotions around because everything you feel about yourself is being determined by looking at people around you, not up at God, not into your heart, but at the world. That's how you're trying to figure out what you're worth and who you are. I was so appreciative of that Pastor Reggie. Here's how you know a good praise leader. They don't just sing well, but the songs they pick are a kind of preaching in itself. And there are people that, that lead worship that when they pick a song after I just give them the text and title, I'm amazed at how insightfully they chose every song and every lyric. Pastor Reggie's like that. And uh, when he picked Build My Life and he ended on that song, I thought how appropriate it is. Because see, the envious person, really their envy is rooted in this. I'm comparing myself to others because even though I know the facts of the gospel, I'm either unwilling or unable to actually draw real peace from it. 
I know I'm supposed to build my life on this hope, this promise, but the truth is I really don't feel safe doing that. I feel like if I trust God, he's going to mess with my life. He's going to take things from me and give them to others. He's going to give me something I don't want and give me all kinds of, give, give others everything that I want. And so the only way to really be okay is to kind of have trust God, but really work hard at trusting myself. I've met so many Christians stuck in this place where they know the gospel, but one thing happens and I see them begin to crumble before my eyes. And I'm like, where is the peace that's supposed to be yours in a moment like this? I know that person just got everything you long for on the same day that you just got taken away from you. Everything. It's like this. Your, your friend's kid just gets into Harvard the day your kid gets put on academic probation. I don't know why life sometimes works that way, but often, right after you see someone else win big, you lose real big, and it's like, what is going on? It's as if God is trying to press into you to say, on what do you actually build your security and confidence? Because I know you, you understand it's supposed to be on the hope of the gospel, but then why do other things, the gains of others, your losses, why do they have such a disproportionate power to uplift or ruin you? It's as if the ground crumbles from under you when certain things happen. The bridge of that song says, well, I don't know if it's the bridge of the chorus, I don't know musical terms, but it's that part that says, I will build my life on your love. It is what? A firm foundation. I will put my trust in you alone. And because of that, I will not be shaken. I don't know about you, but if I'm being honest, after having been pastor in my church for 25 years, I can't honestly say that describes most Christians I've known. I wish I, I could say that. But I've seen so many people after 20 years of walking with Jesus, something bad happens, and they don't just struggle, they don't even turn to Him, they crumble. Everything is lost. And I realize that thing which they just lost was their firm foundation. It was their world, their security. It was everything they valued. And when God took that away, God became my adversary. And if you are the part of the... the, the, the people who took it away from me, you now become my adversary. The gospel isn't just an insurance policy for later. It is meant to be the source, the wellspring of a real and enduring peace and wholeness that allows us to weather the storms even when someone else wins big in the very thing which I always wanted to have. There's a essayist, and he was a former editor of the American Scholar. His name is Joseph Epstein. In fact, he's the guy who wrote the whole book on envy. He didn't write it from a Christian perspective, but it was really a worthwhile, hilarious read. Here, here's my favorite line. Of all the deadly sins, only envy is no fun at all. <laughs> and I was, I was like, what? And then I read through the list, and I'm like, pride? Oh yeah, it can feel kind of fun to be prideful. Wrath? It feels really good to be super mad sometimes. Sloth. Who doesn't think sloth is a little fun? And do we really need to talk about greed and gluttony and lust? 
Those would not be problems if they were painful and horrible all the time. Would you eat too much if it caused physical pain the second you put food in your mouth? Who would ever overeat? So the idea is of all these seven sins, only envy has no upside. Only envy has no part that goes, well, I can't help it. It feels so good. It feels terrible all the time. There's not a good version of envy. When's the last time you said to yourself, I love when other people have what I want because I just love sitting here feeling less <laughs> jealous. Just, oh, you have everything. I have nothing. <sighs> There's none of that, is there? It's torture from beginning to end. And for the envious Christian who, though they know the gospel, cannot rest their feet on that firm foundation, who are tossed here and there by the gains and losses in their life to the point that they give up on faith, on themselves, on others, that is an exhausting and painful way to live. For the envious, even their sin is full of displeasure and suffering. And the God who says, I have your back, starts to feel like he's drifting further and further away because the envious person in the end doesn't just say, I'm unlucky. But as we'll soon see, the real cost of envy is that we don't start, by, and, start and stop just by feeling bad about our situation. We have to blame someone. Have you noticed that about the human heart? that it's really hard for us just to be upset about a situation, someone must pay. It's the American way, right? There's no such thing as an act of God. A tornado, that's ridiculous. I can't believe the government didn't prepare enough for every possible contingency in the universe. It's all their fault. The mayor, the governor, the, the, the president. It's as if nothing bad can just happen in America. Someone must be to blame. It's the way we do life. He says there was a time before we knew Christ when that was the whole way the world lived. It's just how it felt. Everywhere we went, that's what people were doing. They were slaves to foolish, deceitful things. Every passion they felt had mastery over them. And as a result, they ordered their lives around things that had no firm footing. Things that could be taken away in an instant. And they built everything on chasing those things. And as a result, when someone got more, began to hate our situation. And with envy, it goes very quickly from I hate my life to I hate everyone. Have you noticed that? At first, it's like, okay, fine. Everybody has a bad day. But then you start looking. Have you noticed that when your car breaks down, everyone else has a greatly functioning car? When I was in high school, here was my torture. And my torture in high school was I had terrible, terrible acne. I, my face still bears a scar. I'm thankful every day to Jeannie for marrying me despite my hideous appearance. But you know, when you have something that visibly wrong with you, like acne vulgaris, here's what I felt walking around. I'm like, look at all these jerks who did clean skin walking around like it's not even a big deal. And I'm like, I was so bitter. 
I couldn't see. Once in a while, I'd walk across somebody who had worse acting to me. I'm like, whatever. And I look at all these other people. I focus on them and go, they don't even seem thankful. So presumptuous. And I know they're all judging me. I know they're all looking at me going, why don't you try washing your face? And I'm like, oh, what a concept. I never thought to do that. And I realized I went from hating my life to very quickly, I hated all of you, you clear-skinned freaks. And I'm not lying when I say that bitterness went really deep. If I could somehow betray or turn the the tables around on a a clear-skinned dude, I relished the vengeance. If I could win a girl's affection away from a clear-skinned guy, I'm like, look at that! That's what you get for having such clear skin. It's such a weird thing about us that we can't just stay miserable. It has to, it, it always ferments into a hatred or disdain for those who have more. It's why it's such a community breaker. And the envious think of life as a zero-sum game, which means every time you gain, I lose. There's only one piece of pie, and everyone's got to try to grab a piece. And if you get some, that means I can't get some. That's the way that the envious think. They can't share or celebrate blessing because everything is, is viewed in terms of loss or gain, debits or credits, in my account or yours. And the worst thing is when your rival gets more, and it seems so effortless, and they seem so oblivious. Because you think to yourself, if, like the worst thing is, I, my, my son Elijah plays basketball, and I love watching him play basketball. I love playing basketball. But my son is 5'8", and I'm, I, I, here's a thing you need to know. When you get older, you shrink. In high school, I was 5'7". Today, I'm 5'5 and a half. I have to throw in that half because otherwise I've lost two inches of height in my life. So when I see a guy who's 6'4", and I go, dude, do you play basketball? And he goes, no, I'm not really interested in basketball. I'm like, God, why do you waste height on a dork like that? He doesn't even want to be tall. Why would you not give... And it's the worst when the guy has what I want. I'm very envious of tall people. There, I said it publicly. I act like I don't care. But if you're five, five and three quarters, I look up to you. So when a person has what I want, and they don't even seem to be taking advantage of it, to be grateful for it, like, I hate being tall. I have to always be like, let me get out my little violin. And here's the thing that happens. I go from hating myself to hating you, but then when I start to meet six or seven other tall people who don't have any interest in playing basketball, I stop hating you, and I start going, who is in charge of this monkey show? Who's up there in the height department mishandling and misappropriating all these inches? Yeah! You guys have no idea what monsters we would have been if God had made a 6-4. NBA. Telling you. And so after a while, here's what happens. I'm not mad at myself, because what did I do to earn this? And I can't be mad at you. You just, you're born that way. 
You know who I start to blame is the guy in charge. Who does that? Why do you take from someone who yearns to give it to someone who doesn't care? What kind of nonsense is that? Can I really say you are in charge when the way you distribute blessings seems so arbitrary and foolish? So unfair, unjust, and unloving. This unfair distribution of blessing begins to poison the way we feel about the one who gives gifts. And what it starts to do is it makes us feel less and less grateful even for what we do have because it begins to lead us to obsess over what we lack. And it feels good to be able to blame someone for what is wrong with my life, what's lacking or missing. I actually have some compassion for Salary because he really worked hard for the musical success that he got in his lifetime. And I have to admit, everything you learn about Mozart will tell you this guy really didn't deserve the gift. He didn't make much of it except a name for himself, and we delight in his music, but I don't like the person. Very similar to Michael Jordan, an amazing player. Thank God he was on our team. But I would never want to spend an hour with that dude in prison. Everything I've seen and heard about him, he's a horrible human being. You'd have to really suspend good judgment to want to be friends with that guy. Michael, if you ever hear this, still, I'm sorry. Sign a a ball for my kid. But you know, that's the way it is. Like This guy had no redeeming qualities, but he produced great stuff. That's basically everyone famous in America today. Produce good stuff, horrible human being. And you meet him and go, why do you get that? I don't understand. You know, I'm at the GRIP Gala every year. Do you guys know GRIP, the inner city ministry? Um, In the former Cabrini Green area, they minister to at-risk youth. And every year at their their big fundraising gala, I see, like, who will give $30,000? Someone will match it. And I'm thinking, God, if if he had just made me richer... I would love to be like, forget all these, I'm just give the whole million right now. Let's just go. Let's just have this turn into a party. If I had money, I would give it away left and right. And then I go home from that, and I turn on HGTV, and I see some fool who goes, yeah, we brought that whole swimming pool tile by tile from Italy. It cost us $3 million. I'm like, why do the morons get all the money? Why would God let someone like that have so much money and his best idea is to move an old swimming pool tile by tile from the old country here? And there are people getting shot and dying and living without hope and we can't do anything for them. And so there's a sense in which I I just really start to feel frustrated at the way things are. Why do the wrong people keep getting all the right stuff? And yet that's not entirely accurate, is it? Because when you start to get envious, you have selective vision. All of us have selective vision. Here's a great wisdom. This one's free, right? Wherever you look, that's what you see. (laughs) But it's true. You can't say, well, I don't see it. It's not there. You see exactly what you're looking at. 
And most of us, that's the one thing we have control over is where we swivel our neck. What you look at is all you will see. It's all you will see. And what envy leads us to do is to only look at what everyone else has that I don't have. It kills the capacity for gratitude. You know, Salieri was no slouch. He was no Mozart, but that doesn't mean he was a me. I have zero musical ability. Salieri was a very accomplished musician. Some would have called him a genius of his time, but because he knew that all of his, his fruit was a product of just hard work, late nights, plugging and chugging, you know that, you know what I'm talking about where somebody, you're sitting there writing a term paper for like days and days, and someone goes, da, 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 and they type this beautiful thing, you're like, how'd you do that so fast? So salary wasn't, it wasn't that he had no fruit, it's just that he had to work so much harder to produce anything. But do you know that he was not someone with no reason to be thankful in the area of music? Do you realize that he was a music teacher to the likes of Liszt and Schubert and Beethoven? Maybe you never heard of Liszt and Schubert, but you've heard of Beethoven, right? Dun, 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 dun. Salieri was his music teacher. He was the chief composer of the Austrian crown for 36 years of his life. When he said, I was the most famous composer in Europe, he wasn't kidding. All until Mozart showed up. He was Mozart to a thousand aspiring composers. But he couldn't be thankful for that any longer because the brightness of Mozart eclipsed everything in him. That sounds like a miserable way to be stuck, doesn't it? And do you see that if you live this way, it makes life and community very challenging because you cannot see people anymore. You just see assets. You see distribution of blessings. You see pluses and minuses. It's very hard to live in community with people whose gains you cannot celebrate. What's the remedy for envy? That slide right there is ridiculous because... I can't in the time remaining even hope to really give any kind of... And I don't even know if I know for sure the remedy. Here's what I believe is a good start. Envy leads to an inability to love. It makes it really hard to love other people. And so what Paul says in his letter to Titus is, we all lived in the grips of malice and envy hating and being hated. It was such a contentious kind of society. Every one of us trying to get our piece of the pie and resenting every piece that someone else got. And then, Jesus showed up. And here's how he describes it. The kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. We didn't work for it. We didn't seek it. God came to us and he appeared. And he saved us, not because we had worked so hard, but he saved us because he wanted to. He poured out his Holy Spirit, and look at the word he uses. He poured it out on us generously. That is the one thing that every Christian can say. On the worst day of your life, when you've lost everything, God nonetheless 
is lavishing his love and wants to pour out his spirit all over you. You know how you, if you're a, a parent of a teenager, let's say you have a teenage daughter and her boyfriend just unceremoniously dumped her. And you want with all your heart to protect her and to heal her heart. And you say things like, sweetie, you're going to be okay. Mom and dad love you with an undying love. Jesus loves you. And in that moment, you know it's probably terrible timing for such a lecture. But her heart is so broken that even that assurance of your love cannot seem to quench the pain of loss, right? But this is the road back. It's not dwell in that land of self-pity and comparison. But to say, even today, on this day where I feel so low and where everyone else appears so high, I will remember where my life with God began. It began with a God who appeared in my life. I didn't chase him. I didn't earn him. And he lavished on me a love and a presence and an empowerment and a spiritual power and provision that is generous even to me. And for that reason, we can be lifted out of this life in the muck where we were totally enslaved by every passion and living in malice and envy with other people. The Apostle John, who <clears throat> called himself, pretty arrogant title, the disciple that Jesus loved, love was a really big deal for the Apostle John. And in his first epistle, he writes these simple words, we love because he first loved us. Any call to love anyone else begins first with understanding and receiving the love of God. You cannot enter community and love others unless first you apprehend and receive the great love of God. And that begins not in some emotional thing, but first by understanding theology correctly. There are these three statements that I've repeated to people at our church for 25 years. In counseling session, after counseling session, here's what I say to them. There are three truths that can never be framed as a question. They are always exclamations, proclamations. These are true words regardless of our situations. If you ever doubt that or call that into question, your faith will begin to waver. Because these are three truths that God gave us not to be proven day after day, but to be accepted as the bedrock on which every other thing is interpreted. Here are these three truths. God is good. I can't believe no one said all the time. <laughs> but it's true. God is good. And here's the thing, when we're envious or when we're going through things, we begin to doubt that, don't we? Is God really good? Could he really be good when this is the life I have to live? Here's another corollary to that. God loves me. God loves me. Do you know how quickly that starts to, call, to fall into doubt when we're going through stuff? I've heard Christians ask that as a question. Does God love me? 
See, this is not something that is left open to proof. It is something which he has established. And furthermore, the third statement is God is in control. Even when it seems like life is out of control, God is in control. And all three of these statements need no further proof than the cross of Jesus Christ. At the cross and in the resurrection of Jesus, we see an encapsulated proof that these are three statements that can never be called into question. You don't interpret your life. Here's what I'm trying to say. You don't determine whether these things are true by looking at your life. You accept that these things are true and then try to understand your life in light of these things. You don't say, how could this be happening if God loves me? You say, God loves me and yet this is happening. How can this be? What does it mean? What am I meant to learn? The minute you start asking, is God good? Does God love me? Is he in control? You have pulled the rug out from under yourself. And at that point, everything is open-ended and uncertain. I'm not trying to brainwash you. I'm simply saying, if at the foot of the cross, you can establish that God is good, only a good God gives up his own son for sinners. And that God loves you because that's the only, only reason he included you in that blessing. And that he's in control so that his son dies when he decides to die. And his son rises when he decides to rise. If at the cross and at the empty tomb you cannot accept the unshakable truth of those three statements, that's where you've got to begin. Revisit the gospel. Stop putting God on trial every time things go bad. Because if you do that, then the one person who is unfailingly for you suddenly gets moved into the I'm not sure how you feel about me category. I believe the remedy for envy is to acknowledge that even on the worst day of my life, God owes me nothing more than the lavish things he's given me through Jesus. If you blip out my life in high school on the day that I pop my 20th zit and I'm feeling low about everything, and I just hate my existence, on that day, nonetheless, I am a born-again, redeemed child of God. He owes me nothing more than that, and yet he has continued to lavish good gifts on me. He's done that for you, too. Envy is a habit of the heart. It may begin as an accurate statement of fact, but when you nurture it, it will poison you, and it will poison all the relationships you're trying to build. It will also poison the relationship between you and the God who distributes blessings. So let me give you a few things that I think can help practically, and then we'll draw our time to a close tonight. Fair enough? Uh, I'm actually doing okay on time, so I'm going to blaze through this and we'll, we'll wrap up soon. But uh, The first thing is, if envy signals the dying of gratitude, then one of the, the ways to remedy that is to begin practicing gratitude as a discipline. I, I would read these um, self-help blogs that would say, Start a gratitude journal. Every night before you go to bed, write down three things you're thankful for today. 
I'm like, what kind of ninny is writing this stuff? How could that possibly make a difference? And then I tried it. I tried it for like a week. What am I thankful? And as I started writing, I'm like, oh man, there's like, and I was coming up with 20, 30, 40 things. I'm like, tomorrow, surely, if I don't repeat this list, there's nothing left. The next day, another. Once you begin practicing the discipline of gratitude, it's remarkable how many things you can find to be thankful for. Gratitude forces us to think about what we have received, not what we have yet to receive. It makes us see God as the giver of good things, not the withholder of the things I still want. And here's the truth. That's the way we respond well when our children or our friends or our family members approach us. How many of you feel wellsprings of love flow out for ungrateful children? You give your kid, the youngest in the family, you give her an iPad mini, and she says to you, why just a mini? They got a pro. And you're like, I'm going to destroy you. (laughs) That ingratitude is so universally unattractive, isn't it? It's so off-putting. It makes us want to further withhold things just to send a message. Do you realize that the Father heart of God delights in gratitude, even if it's done simply as a discipline at first? But you'd be amazed at these disciplines and the effect they have on the heart if you will just engage. I give you a dare. Keep a gratitude journal for a week. Sit down each night and write down three genuine, non-repeating things you can be truly thankful for that day. Do you know, I've done this periodically since I did that first exercise. And one day, I was having kind of a blah day, and what I wrote, are there children in the room right now? Okay. One of the things I wrote was, thank you, God, that I'm not a woman who has to have periods because I can't imagine what that must be like. (laughs) And, you know, I'm not trying to despair. I'm just saying, like, even something that simple, I'm like, I've never had to deal with that And I've just taken it for granted. I thanked God for that little advantage. And you women know, like, it stinks, right? You're not like, period, power. Like, you don't hate, you hate it too. So I just paused, you know, God, today, that's one of the things I'm actually grateful for. There's a reason that was in my mind. (laughs) But I was genuinely, I was genuinely thankful for it. So it's this kind of thing where you just say, God, I refuse to walk away until I've really come to grips with, I do have something I am truly thankful for in this moment. Here's another one. Practice humility. Part of what's galling to us, here, there you go, thank you. Part of what's galling to us about the apparent easiness with which others get blessed is everything looks easy for them. You know, I told Joel ahead of time I would be talking about it, so Joel, I hope it's okay, but... I look at a guy like Joe, and I'm tempted, I'm tempted to think it's all genetics. He probably just rolls out of bed. Sometimes you see a beautiful woman. She just rolls out of bed. Her hair is perfect. You're like, it's just genetics. What we don't know is just how hard they work to get what they've got. I have a little sense of Joe because this, this dude is he crazy. He's just a cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs crazy. 
I show up for basketball early at 9.30 on Monday, and he has already worked out three hours that morning. I don't know why he hates himself so much, but he's already worked out three hours, and then at basketball, this guy's wearing ankle weights. Why? So when I see Joe, and I'm tempted to go, well, I work out too. I don't get that result. I don't work out like that, okay? It's tempting to think he just gets that. Just woke up and, oh, six pack or something. Right? No, that is pride at work. Humility says, I'm sure that that guy works way harder than I'm willing to ever work. And so he has something I don't yet have. I would love to say, I work out. I, I do 50 push-ups and 50 sit-ups a day, y'all. I'm not going to ever look like that doing 50 push-ups, 50 sit-ups a day. So there's got to be a little humility that the apparent effortlessness of everybody else's wins is not always as effortless as you think. And when you're envious and bitter, it's easy to check on, go, I'm not going to work hard because hard work doesn't matter. Yes, it does matter. Investment, obedience, discipline, all matter. People say, how do you stay so close to God, so positive? You think I feel like spending time with God every time I do it? That I want to have a good... You know how, what an occupational hazard it is for pastors to have a spiritual slump? Because every seven days we still have to stand before you guys and talk for God. It takes so much discipline and intent to stay in that place with God that we belong. It isn't like I just roll out of bed every day positive, hopeful, gracious, loving. Those things, there's so much we eat every day and bring to God in private and beat our chests in prayer. It's not as effortless as it looks to you. And I know in your own life there are things like that where you know in secret just how disciplined and hard you have to work to get even a little result. Can we suspend our prideful moment and say that sometimes our envy and our bitterness is about a false kind of unfairness? That many others work very hard to get the effortless results that we yearn for in envy. Maybe instead of seeing them as a competition or as your rival, you can be inspired by them. In fact, I challenge you to tell Joe, coach me. Meet me every day at 6 a.m. Tell me what I got to do. I'll do everything you say. I am your clay. You are the potter. <laughs> I bet you he'll invest in you, and I bet you you will actually feel and look different after a year. All right, Joe, I talked about you enough. Is that okay? I, I, I warned you I was going to do it, so don't, don't get mad at me. Let me give you another one. Practice love. I find it's really, really hard to keep hating someone that I'm actively loving. I'm such a genius. I come up to... Here's, here's my monkey preaching right now. I could sit there and go, you think you're so great. You think you're all that. It's just genetics. But if I begin to practice love, if I say to somebody that I'm tempted to envy, you know what, brother? You are an amazing communicator. 
I wish I could say things as clearly as you do. You have this gift. If I'm lavishing real and genuine love, even as a discipline, I find that I'm starting to actually believe my words. My heart is following my obedience. When you see that girl who's just so effortlessly beautiful, and you're like, why don't I ever get to look like that on my best day? And you say, you, you, you love her in some concrete way. I found this at the store, and I just imagined how pretty it would look on you. I just wanted to give it to you. You'll wear it way better than I would. Oh my gosh, it looks awesome on you, just like I pictured. And in your heart, maybe you're tempted to go, <sighs> but you love that person enough, and your heart begins to change. Do you think God loved us because we were so lovable? It's tempting to think that because I see your children here and I'm like, so cute, so cute. I just want to love you because they're so cute. Do you think that's what draws God to us is our lovability? He has to suppress a gag reflex <laughs> when he approaches us. And the only way he can stand the stench of us is to look at his son, Jesus, and say, he covers you. So it may not be easy to love that ungrateful effortlessly perfect person. But when we obey the Lord and love others as ourselves, he begins to do a marvelous work changing our hearts, making us more generous of spirit, more grace-filled. I'll end with this. Practice patience. Practice patience. Here's what I mean by that. There are a hundred things I could write down today that I really wish could be true of my earthly life before I die. How many of you maintain bucket lists? <clears throat> Some people say it's a bad practice. I can't help myself. I maintain all kinds of little secret bucket lists, places I want to see, things I want to taste and go and do. And by God's grace, I've hit a lot of my... I just hit one of the big ones. I wanted to swim in the ocean with whale sharks. And I got to do it, and I'm so happy. Check that box off. It was an amazing adventure. But there are also a million things that I want that I'll never get before I die. I've always wanted to dunk a basketball. <laughs> always. Ever since I was a kid, I just, I thought, man, if I could do that just once. And in FAR, this, one of the dormitories at U of I, they used to have wrestling mats on the wall by the gym. And I would jump off the wrestling mat and I could dunk. And it felt so good, but I have never done a dunk unassisted. And you know what? Even though I've watched YouTube videos on, you know, those jumping shoes, the ones you keep doing this, and how to jump off the block, jump on the and I'm watching these, I'm like, could I possibly, is it? And I realized, no, no. This earthly existence will come and go for me. And you could put on my gravestone, here lies Dave. He never dunked. <laughs> Another thing that when I was younger and had healthier joints I always wanted to do was run a marathon. Not because I'd like to. Nobody enjoys Maybe Betty, she's crazy. But you know, you're not supposed to enjoy it. It's just a, this challenge, this epic thing you're, you're trying to conquer. And I always wanted to see if I had the grit in me, but my knees are so shot. I pretty much said, on this earthly life, unless I want to end up in a wheelchair, I'm never going to run a marathon. And the finality of that... I got to say to you, it really affected me, like the idea that I will never run a marathon in this earthly life. I grew up loving the military, all things military, and I think about it now, 
I will never be a soldier serving my country. I missed the window. I actually looked it up a few days ago. How old can you be to enlist, even for a year? And I realized I have missed that window by almost two decades. You get what I'm saying? There are so many things that we want in this life that are just never, ever going to happen. And for some of us, that makes us insane. Because we believe that we can actually, through hard work and grit, have everything we want. But here's what I love about the hope of eternity, is that someday, all things will be made new. Now, I can't guarantee you what heaven will be like. That was the stuff of many happy late-night conversations at Denny's. What are you going to do when you get to heaven? I think heaven's going to be a giant stretch of highway. We'll all have Lamborghinis, and there's no cops. So we say stupid things like that, just picturing what heaven's going to be like. It was this world remade with no limitations. I believe, because I think God loves me like that, that just for a day in heaven, I'm going to dunk a basketball. (laughs) And I feel like the first thing I'm going to do when I get to heaven on my new knees, I'm just going to run, Forrest, run. (laughs) And 26.1 miles, I'll be like, there. And those are silly things. How many more things? Some of us yearn to be truly loved. We thought we were going to get that when we got married. For some, marriage never happened. For others, they got married. And they are now sentenced to a life with someone who cannot seem to love them the way they've always wanted to be loved. Others knew the love of a lifetime and abruptly, cruelly lost the one they loved. And there is this thing in your heart that says, how will I ever get that thing? Because we feel like somehow we are entitled to get it all. And God says, I want you to know that that is your destiny. But not every yearning will be met here in this life. That is why eternity is so important for us. Some have tried to make a heaven of a kind here on earth. That's a terrible idea. This is not as good as it gets. It gets better. And I started with trivial things like dunking a ball and running a marathon. But there are some much heavier things that are going to be unfinished business when you draw your last breath. And those things, those yearnings, will shape your envy over your lifetime. But I tell you, if you can just transfer your hope to eternity and say, God, who is good, will one day lead me to paradise. And I will be loved and seen and understood like I have never been before. I will receive a new body, live in a new creation, untouched by sin and decay. And I will spend forever in that state with the one who loves me most, surrounded by everyone else who has been loved by that God. And we will be an unbroken family forever and ever and ever. Can that hope temper some of the discontent with which we have to live every day? I believe we can. 
I'm going to end here. I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to invite the praise team to come back up. We want to have a little bit of response time today. There's not going to be a small group discussion time, but we want to go... We're not college students anymore, so we won't go to like midnight or anything, but I'd like us to be able to have a chance, not just about the envy message, but just in general about the community we long for in our families, in our church, in our neighborhoods. And just invite the Lord to keep doing a work first in us. Work through that stuff which we are carrying into every relationship that is working against it. So let's pray together. God, we acknowledge that every time we look at someone else with envy, there is someone else looking at us with the same feeling. There are so many people who have less than what we have been given. And yet we find the power of envy has such a strong pull on our hearts. So Holy Spirit, would you enter our hearts and revive the capacity in us for gratitude, for grace towards others, for a humility that acknowledges not everything comes effortlessly to everyone. Give us the grace of being able to say with all certainty in all times, in every situation, never as a question, always as a confession, you are always good. You always have loved us. You have never stopped. No matter what our lives feel like, you are always in control. This is our starting place. And we confess those things together. Bind the enemy who would lead us to believe that somehow you are unfair, unkind to us, unjust. That you have withheld from us and lavished on others because you don't care. For those who are in bondage to envy, to the extent that they cannot live in community with others, who are so dissatisfied with their lives. Lord Jesus, come and minister especially to those tonight. Help them to see at the foot of the cross and in front of that empty tomb just how deeply loved, how generously provided for each of us is. God, we long to see ICC be so much more than just a place where Christians hang out. We want it to be a place where we are seen and known and understood, where it is safe to be imperfect, it is safe to pour out our hearts. We want to love each other 
the way family is supposed to. Some of us desperately need it, God, because our own families have been such places of pain. We want your house, your family, to be a healing place for us. And so we ask you to take up that burden and begin reshaping community at ICC. For our part, help us not simply to give opinion and cast verdicts, but help us to do the hard work with you of kneeling before you in humility, laying bare our hearts in confessional postures, inviting you to shine your light in our hearts, even in those places we don't want to open up to you. Examine, search our hearts, and see if there be any offensive way in us. And then lead us in the way everlasting. Come, Lord Jesus, do your work. Come, Holy Spirit, do your work. We welcome you here, Lord Jesus. Amen.